and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed. I'm your host, Richie Billing, and today I've got a hearty dose of fantasy writing inspiration for you, as always. And I am aware that this episode is released on Valentine's Day. So I've tried to keep the topic somewhat loving, though not very romantic, if I'm totally honest. Um, our resident oracle of medieval history, Aidan Mattis, uh, is coming back to the tool shed to teach us all about food in the Middle Ages. And Yanina Arndt and Lucy Atkinson from the Faith Follows podcast are also returning for a chat about fairy tales. So a little bit of a, a romantic vibe, I suppose. I've also got some calls for submissions and some interesting news from the writing world as well. Before we dive in, I'd be ever so grateful if you could please subscribe or follow the show, share it with anyone you think may be interested, or left us a quick and honest review. Spotify has also introduced this ratings system, which a lot of people have left us ratings and I'm very grateful for that, so please keep on doing so. These ratings and reviews, they help massively in giving us confirmation and encouragement to keep going and to keep producing content so if you do enjoy the show this makes a massive difference otherwise you never know we might just stop doing it if you'd like to take your learning beyond this podcast why not check out our patreon page you can access writing classes and workshops covering topics like writing a fantasy novel world building and creating characters you can also get a copy of my book on writing fantasy which is called a fantasy writer's handbook and that has helped a lot of people over the years and some of them have even managed to land book deals you can also find some exclusive interviews on fantasy topics as well so Head over to Patreon, there's lots to take advantage of there. And why not join our writing community as well? It's pretty much open to everybody. There are hundreds of writers from all genres in the group. We tend to gather on Facebook and Discord and discuss ideas. We help with beta reading and just generally keep each other entertained. To join us, just click the link in the description. Now, on with the show. And here's Aidan Mattis from the Fantastic Law Lodge for a chat all about medieval cuisine. In our office the other week, we were chatting about something that got me laughing. A dish called Perpetual Stew. Funnily enough, I'd read about this when doing a bit of research for one of my recent works in progress. And this Perpetual Stew is a medieval dish and actually it's found its way into one of my stories. And some re readers have even commented upon the very inclusion of it. And spending that bit of extra time researching foods and the characters um, who could eat these different kinds of dishes, particularly if you have a medieval setting for your story, can really make a massive difference to the, the immersiveness of your world. So to help you in your quest to enlightenment, I'm delighted to welcome back uh, medieval oracle, Mr. Aidan Mattis. Aidan, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm well. You ready to talk about some lovely medieval food? Yes, and uh, the, the perpetual stew one gets me. Yeah. It was, like... Honestly, I was just, I just turned around and heard someone say, oh yeah, have you tried perpetual stew? And I was like, what? Yes, I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, it's the same concept as like using a cast iron skillet and how you're not supposed to wash it with soap. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it, it, part of the flavor is getting all the flavor of the previous meals. Um, I don't know how uh, how sanitary it is, but I haven't died yet, so. Yeah, I'm going to have to try it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's, especially it comes from like medieval, uh, like in culture and um, army encampments because you just, Often with with inns, you had people coming in all the time, so it didn't really make sense to yeah. wash stuff, uh, especially because it was constantly boiling. So it's not like it was going to get you sick. Not that they knew what germ theory was, but they they understood that boiling water would make it clean. So they knew that if you kept food hot, then it would stay good, especially if you were constantly cycling through it. And on army encampments, they were, they rarely had the the spare water to wash out pots, so. You would just kind of have this constant use of of uh, pots and pans and and cooking materials. Yeah, that was that was of course not like uh nothing you would see in like a peasant's household. <laughs> so I mean, I know from a bit of research that I've done in the past that one of the most popular dishes was something called pottage, which yes. is a bit like a perpetual stew. Um, yeah. And 
you mentioned peasant households there. So would it be a kind of dish that would you'd see quite a lot of in peasant households? Yeah, peasants commonly ate things that were uh, kind of what we would today look at as, as pies or stews, because that was just the best way to get the most nutrients into one spot um, and have the most filling meal. Uh, peasants would often also, if they if they did have access to meat, um, the the use of meat by the non-elite classes in medieval Europe was much different than its use by elites and even modern people. You would not see any, really anybody in the Middle Ages eating a steak. You might, at the upper echelons, you know, knights and lords and kings would would eat things like roasts and uh, and steaks and things like that. But if you were of the lower classes, then you wanted to take that meat and the flavoring from it and spread it throughout as much as you could. So that's why stews and pottage and puddings and pies were so popular is because you could take meat and cook it in something that would soak up all the juices. And then you have even more meat flavored stuff. So uh, a, a, a common dish would be like mincemeat pie, um, a, a beef stew with uh, carrots and things like that would, would be a, a popular medieval inspired dish. Even, even today, you know, if you go to an Irish restaurant, you're going to get uh, if you order like a, a Guinness stew or something, which is a, a popular dish over in American Irish communities. You're, you're going to have something that's basically you take a, a chunk of roast, you toss into a stew, you put carrots and celery and uh, potatoes and everything in it. And you, you really like stew that for hours. And the reason you do that is to get the meat flavoring to soak into the vegetables and the potatoes. And if you, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have bread with it usually. And what uh, in medieval times, what they would do was bread that was meant to be carried uh, on campaign or by travelers was not, um, you, you didn't want soft bread, you know, because if you had a soft bread, it was going to get mushed and just, just wasn't going to be edible by the time you're traveling somewhere. So they would bake their bread very, very hard. And then the way that you would soften it to make it edible was that you would, when you went to eat dinner that night, you would put the bread into the stew and you would soak it in the stew while you ate your stew. And then by the time you're, you're done, you've got your nice soft bread and you can eat that and that gives you your, your carbs and your grains. Was another name for that trenches? Uh, trenchers were specifically uh, like bread bowls. So uh. it would be a, a, a hollowed out loaf of bread. And I, I've seen them, I've seen people use them in cooking in the modern era because it, it makes sense. But it was the same idea. You would you would bake a loaf of bread, cut out the middle of it, and then pour the stew into it so that it would soak into the walls, and then you would have you would be able to eat your plate, um, essentially. Yeah. That's washing off, that's my kind of echo. Honestly, like in my opinion, I wish somebody would come up with a like a, a, a trencher that tasted good that you could sell commercially. Oh, I've <laughs> never tried Yorkshire pudding. I've, I've never tried Yorkshire pudding. Oh man, that's what you I, mean. also the 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 way that you Brits use the term puddings scares me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not pudding, like over here it? in the states, pudding almost exclusively refers to like a dairy. Um, dessert dish like chocolate pudding, vanilla yeah. pudding, banana cream pudding, like something like that. We don't really refer to uh, dishes that are not desserts as puddings. So yeah, <laughs> I'm always worried when I like when when I hear a British person say some sort of pudding that I don't recognize. I'm like, all right, there's a 50 50 chance that that has meat in it. <laughs> yeah, you no try it because it's exactly what you described. You can have yeah. a big Yorkshire pudding and then it's like a big bowl and you have all your stew. Or any you want in there. Is is that the one where you you take a trencher and you put it into the oven underneath a roast and you let the juices drip down into it? No, I think that's something different, but that sounds quite nice. Right. I've I've heard of that as well, where the, that would be the dish essentially that was given to peasants at feasts was you would cook the you would cook your meat and then you would have your your bread underneath it and you would let the juices drip down on the bread and the yeah. peasants would get that if they weren't getting meat themselves. Mm-hmm. Something I read about peasants as well, which was, I found quite clever, is that if they didn't have enough grain or whatever they used to feed the animals, they would slaughter them in autumn so they didn't have to feed them through the winter. Yes. Uh, if, you're, if your animal was not going to make it through the winter for any reason, be it sickness or you didn't have the grain to feed them or you didn't have the space to house them, uh, the best option that you had as a peasant was usually to, uh, to to slaughter the animal and, and you know send it to a butcher. 
partially because you could get, you know, if, if you had a sheep that you weren't going to be able to take care of for the winter, um, that was not only could you get some meat out of it, which was very rare. It was extraordinarily rare that peasants ever got to eat meat. So if you had a sheep that you could sell to a butcher, then that was not only money in your pocket, but it was also, you know, you were going to get to eat meat. Um, and the way that they would, you know, preserve meat was they would they would salt it and sometimes you would coat it in something like butter, but they would essentially dry age their meat, you know, in, in cellars and, and hang it in the cold with salt on it to preserve it over time. Um, and then you would just kind of cut off the, the rind that would form. But yeah, that, that is definitely something that would happen. How long will cured meat like that last for? It would get you through the winter. I know I, I know for a fact it can last three months, but I've heard stories of people managing to use, you know, natural salt curing to keep something for six months. But for the most part, you know, you, you would want to keep that through like the winter. Also, it was very difficult for people in continental Europe to maintain a low enough temperature to salt cure meat for more than just the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you, you could definitely get yourself through a winter on cured meat um, and people would take it on campaign as well actually just straight up dry out meat to be almost like a jerky when you were on campaign a lot of the time if you couldn't get access to uh you know cattle on the campaign trail but you know obviously not not a peasant situation but for example knights going into combat would eat a, a pound of meat that morning they'd eat a pound of beef um because they needed the calories to get through the day a lot of meat yeah it's a lot of meat <laughs> so that was going to ask you as well was about uh, bread and how important that was to medieval diets. <laughs> Extremely important. Um, most most of a peasant's calories were going to come from bread. As you kind of got up a little bit in society from the you know serf or like free uh, free peasant level, um, you were going to see more dairy involved in your diet, and then eventually uh, meat and um, and things like that. But you got to remember that grain was used for not only just bread, but also ale. And bread and ale were two of the primary uh, sources of of uh, nourishment for, for a medieval peasant because uh, ale w- was, it was clean, first of all. Yeah. Um, it is, a, it, the, the whole medieval people were drunk all the time because they only drank ale and not water thing is a complete myth yeah. um, that was fabricated during really during the Victorian period when they were trying to display themselves as being better than the medieval period. So they kept making up just lies <laughs> about the middle ages so that they could feel better about themselves. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was very useful for, for keeping people fed. Um, and bread also is something that expands in your stomach. So you'll feel full for longer. And uh, it's, it's the same thing with, with ale, things like that. The grains will keep you full. And also, of course, bread can absorb things. So if you have a, a very small, even like a two ounce piece of like mutton, and you use that to cook, and then you stick your your bread in it, or you pour the 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 stew over bread, it enhances the amount of flavor you're going to get. You're going to be able to enjoy that for longer. So people would use bread not only as a staple food, but also to sort of um, draw out the or extend the life of what little um flavorful food they could get so you know you're looking at uh probably 80 percent of the calories 90 percent of the calories that medieval people were taking in um were coming from bread or ale yeah it's insane um also true of modern italians with pasta uh (laughs) (laughs) so because everyone's quite dependent on harvests and whatnot I know in the 1300s in particular, there were a lot of famines. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about that and what kind of, I mean, I, I, my family are all Irish, so the Irish famine is, is, is well known to me. What, kind, what would it have been like back then? So I can imagine there's a bit, of, a bit of food that you can rely on, like berries and nuts and stuff that you can forage. But imagine two years, it's the second year of, a, of a, like two years of bad harvests. Mm-hmm. What 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 kind of situation is that going to be like? Um, so it, it really depended on the type of famine. So, for example, a lot of the famines that were in the 1300s resulted from uh, the Black Plague because you lost so many of your farmers 
um, that you just, it, there were a lot of times where people just couldn't produce enough food for the people who survived and it would take a few years to recover and figure out who was going to farm what and uh, for, for the population to really recover from losing, um, you know, in some cases, 50% of, of their uh, working population. So, you know, the, it, it, it's kind of a which came first situation in a lot of cases, but also if it was a famine that was affecting uh, a singular region, then the way that that would be dealt with was usually that lords and monarchs would uh, make deals to purchase excess grain from other lords and kings to feed their own population. Um, or in other cases, they might take advantage of the situation and use that time to declare war on somebody because they weren't going to be able to fight it very well. Uh, and if you are an invading French king coming into, say, German territory and the Germans are experiencing a famine and you as the king of France have a surplus of grain and you come and conquer the Germans, at first they might be a little upset about it, but if you feed them, yeah. then, then they're going to be all on board. They're going to be happy about it. So uh, it, it really depended on what you're looking at. So a, a regional famine would be dealt with usually by uh, making deals to import grain from other places. A widespread famine, like what you experienced during the Little Ice Age, during the, the Black Plague, uh, all that, that was going to be a much bigger problem. It was going to be much harder to solve it. And it was genuinely one of the things that would drive people to uh, migrate and to leave and to go elsewhere. If you were on your second or third year of a famine, you really didn't know how long it was going to last. You might look to emigrate um, and go somewhere else if you had the means. Uh, but in a lot of cases, people would... Um, go hungry and lifespans shorten during these periods. Uh, one thing that we kind of take for granted in our, our modern society is that there's almost nowhere on, there's never going to be a situation unless there is some major catastrophic, catastrophic event where the entire world experiences a famine. If you're undergoing a famine somewhere, you can always import food. For example, uh, California was dealing, is still dealing with, I believe, a pretty severe drought over the last decade, they've been having a lot of problems with their water sources. So if California were isolated, if we didn't have, you know, trucking and shipping, then they would be in a lot of trouble. But they've been able to import food, even just from neighboring states, uh, to, to fill those gaps. So in the modern age, we can't really imagine that there would ever be a time where you've got to resign yourself to the fact that you or a family member might starve. But in the medieval period, that was a very real possibility. One way people might handle it was they might send their children off to be wards somewhere else or to, uh, if somebody was capable of getting their child into um, the service of a knight as a page, they might do that. Uh, you know, the if you, were, if you were a peasant, you were always looking for a way to get out of being a peasant. Yeah. Um, to, to, you know, either earn enough money that you could hire your own workers to work in your fields or to get your kids into a system where they could become a, a knight themselves by being a page first. And then in the later Middle Ages, you would maybe try and apprentice them to somebody in one of the cities because those people had more mobility and more, more money. Um, but it was a very real possibility during a famine in the Middle, the middle Ages, if you were looking at two, three years of of poor crops that you you or a family member might starve, um, which is just one of the dark realities of world history. Um, but you know, in the plagues and famines were extremely deadly, and there was often nothing you could do about it. Yeah. Like if, if you if you're if you're writing a if you're working on a fantasy story and you need you need an environmental thing that is going to be a genuine risk to your characters. Plagues and famines are two of the best ones and the most accurate ones you can go with without tapping into like magical stuff. Yes. Um, because there really was no no recourse for it. You couldn't do anything about it. You were you were just stuck. Yeah, definitely. It's horrific source of conflict. And yeah. just thinking about little things like food source, it can just add new elements to your story. Mm -hmm. So it's been fantastic talking to you uh, about that, Aiden. Thanks so much for sharing all that uh, information and wisdom. Thanks for having me on. How can we find out a bit more about you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok at the Aiden Mattis. That is T H E A I D A N M A T T I S, or on YouTube and Patreon at uh, the Lore Lodge. Thanks very much, and Aiden will be back for uh, more medieval chat in the next few episodes. A big thank you to Aiden there. Uh, 
fascinating stuff as always. I love doing a bit of research into history, especially if you have medieval setting or some kind of historical setting within your story. And often the things like food and the likes of song and poetry and stories within the story, um, which all adds to the, the overall world and immersiveness of the world, I do tend to find it can be a little bit forgotten. So hopefully that's given you some good ideas, nice simple ideas, which you can just use to, to show your readers how fleshed out immersive your world actually is. Now, I've got some calls for submissions for you, some very interesting ones indeed. Again, mostly fantasy, though there is some horror and other subgenres in there as well and genres. First up, Weird Horror Magazine is open for submissions for the entire month of March. And they're looking for horror and weird fiction between 500 and 6,000 words. If you do have a story longer than 6,000, please query. But I do understand that they have turned down stories about 8,000 words long. So probably best to stick to the word limit on that one. They're only looking for original stories and they allow simultaneous submissions. Payment is one and a half cents per word. And you also get two contributor copies of the anthology. To learn more, go to undertowpublications.com and look for the Weird Horror Magazine link. Speculative City is seeking provocative fiction, poetry and essays that centre on queer life as seen through black, indigenous and people of colour's perspective. And they're looking for it to be set in a speculative city. Authors must identify as queer, um, as well as black, indigenous, or a person of colour. The deadline for this one is the 1st of March, and the word count is up to 5,500. They pay between $20 and $55, depending on the length. Um, no sim simultaneous submissions and no reprints, so a little bit restrictive on that front. Have a look at speculativecity.com forward slash submissions for that one. The Bureau Dispatch seeks very short stories of all genres for an anthology on the theme of dispatch in any sense of the word. There's no deadline and the word count is between 500 and 1500 words. They pay $50 but they don't accept reprints. Average response is around two weeks though. Things can get a little bit busy so just be patient I suppose. And to find out more, head to bureaudispatch.com, which is B-U-R-E-A-U-D-I-S-P-A-T-C-H. Planet Bizarro is seeking stories about bizarre monsters for their anthology, Peculiar Monstrosities. They could be bloodthirsty, benevolent pets, or whatever else you can dream up. Keep in mind that they do love stories of the bizarre. They also love horror, humour, and stories with a message, though a subtle one. So keep it weird, keep it wacky, and keep it very much bizarre. The deadline is the 1st of March, and the word count is between four and 7,000 words. £20 is the payments, and to submit, go to planetbizarro.com, which is planet, and bizarro is B-I-Z-A-R-R-O. And lastly, some, something that I'm very interested in, I submit to it every year. Uh, I've submitted to it this year too. It is the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award. It's open now until the 30th of April. The word count is up to 8,000 words. And for the winner, you'll be published on the Bane website. Um, you'll receive industry standard rates plus $500 worth of Bane books. Second and third place also get $500 and $300 worth of Bane books. And what they're looking for with this is adventure fantasy stories with heroes you want to root for. This could be warriors, uh, either modern or medieval, who solve problems with their wits or with their weapons. And we have nothing against dragons, they say. Elves, dwarves, castles under siege, urban fantasy, damsels in distress or damsels who inflict distress. Very much open to all kinds of stories. However, they do not want political drama with no action. Angst-ridden teens pining over vampire lovers and religious allegory or novel segments or your gaming adventure transcript. 
For more information, go to bain.com, which is B-A-E-N.com. Good luck with the submissions. Please, please, if you have success, let us know. It's it's always so refreshing to hear people did get a successful submission because all I tend to hear is how they've received so many rejections and they're getting fed up. So we do love to hear success stories. We'll have more calls for submissions in the next episode. But now I just wanted to tell you about some interesting news from the writing world, which may affect you if you use either Draft to Digital or Smashwords for the distribution of your eBooks. So if you've not heard, Draft to Digital is taking over Smashwords. I use Draft to Digital. I've not used Smashwords, but I understand Smashwords is a free eBook publishing and distribution platform. They offer a fast, free, and easy service for authors and publishers to distribute their eBooks. Now, Draft to Digital is very much the same thing. And over the years, they've been cast as rivals, but they themselves describe it as a friendly rivalry. And they, they share the same ethos, which is a love and appreciation of the author community and helping authors get their books out to the wider community. A lot of the people involved in the creation of both these platforms are authors themselves. So it was created by them initially for their benefit, but also for the benefit of everybody else. So the tools, both platforms, both tools are very useful indeed. Now, merging these two together is an interesting move. It does make sense for the, from their perspective to combine resources and to stop competing with one another. Um, and just to create a, a mega platform, which is going to be absolutely incredibly useful to, to authors. It has been confirmed by Drafter Digital that um, there will be a unified author dashboard and user experience soon. And Drafter Digital users will gain access to the Smashwords store, Smashwords coupons, Smashwords pre-sales, self-set serve merchandising and author interviews and smashwords users will also gain access to draft to digital features like universal book links and simpler publishing tools smashwords also doesn't let you publish directly to amazon whereas draft to digital does so that is going to be an improvement on that front for smashwords users now the only thing i have to say is to expect some changes in the accessibility and pricing of both platforms. I know a lot of um, the, the people involved in these two platforms are in it to help people, but when there's so much money involved in takeovers, it's only natural for owners to want to recoup that cash. And they may also have differing views on how each business should be run. So if Drafter Digital takes over Smashwords, they may see opportunities for them to make extra money. So don't be surprised if some kind of pricing feature is introduced. I mean, I'm just going off the example of MailChimp, which was recently taken over by a company called Intuit for literally billions of pounds. Pretty soon, the prices went up. The monthly costs of MailChimp subscriptions has increased. And they've also introduced cost-cutting features like rather than them providing some kind of two-tier login service. They've outsourced that back onto um, consumers to save money themselves. So it just adds more more layers to the, the work that you've got to do. I'm, I'm pretty hacked off with all the, the uh, changes to MailChimp. I expect there's going to be more price increases. I have raised it with them and they said it was to make the experience um, for users better. But we all know that's bollocks really, don't we? So let me know what you think. If you do use Smashwords, if you do use Draft to Digital, um, if you notice any improvements or any decrease in quality, please let me know. It's really important for other authors in our community to be aware of these things going on, especially if you're using them. And if if there is a decline in quality, then what are we going to do? We we don't have as much choice anymore between these two kinds of uh, platforms. So uh, are we going to be stuck with just Amazon again or other platforms who knows now it's time to welcome some more guests to the tool shed and this time we've got none other than the lovely lucy atkinson and yanina Ants from the faith fellows podcast for a chat about fairy tales i'm delighted to welcome back to the tool shed today yanina Ants and lucy atkinson from the faith fellows podcast how's it going you're both okay yeah all right lovely day 
Very good. So, returning today for a chat about fairy tales and the influence that they've had on the development of the fantasy genre. I know, Janina, you're, this is one of your specialties, isn't it? Fairy tales. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Um, I, well, my dad is from the town that the Pied Piper is from. Um, so I sort of always grew up with, you know, fairy tales around me. Um, yeah. And literally, like, statues of the Pied Piper everywhere there. There's nothing else in that town. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Um, So one thing is that I I just really like how you can still see these things in different places, like how they're tied to the place and, like, give the place an identity. And then on the other hand, um, I did a module on on fairy tales in, uh, at uni, um, which was also about writing your own fairy tale. So we sort of came at it from the angle of what are the different elements. And then also like, what does Disney do to fairy tales? <laughs> and then now you you have a crack at it. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Um, I think that'd be a good place to start then. So basically breaking down what fairy tales are. So do you want to uh, share your wisdom? I mean, yeah. Um, so basically the one main element of fairy tales which you probably won't think of as as the first thing first thing you probably think about you know princess dragon something of the sort but the main element um that you will find in almost every fairy tale is a tale of social mobility so that sounds really abstract and academic but when you think about it it's quite often it's a tale about someone from a humble background achieving something great or you know getting a better status through something that they do through being and like merit being rewarded rather than um, rich people being proven to be great heroes or something. Yeah, yeah. So that's originally what fairy tales come from. And that's why they're like folk stories. They are being told by everyone Yeah. because everyone has these dreams. Campfire stories, like like stories passed down from elders as well, like sort of the other sort of like the everyday people, these kind of stories and these aspirational tales, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like it's everyone's dream. So everyone wants to share these things and wants to wants to talk about them. And like that's that's what keeps them alive as well throughout the throughout the different ages. And you can see different fairy tales from different ages because you can sort of, you know, the, the dreams sort of slightly differ and the like social statuses slightly differ. But it's they're all about that sort of change that the the you know, the humble villager marries the princess or, you know, or saves the princess. Um, doesn't have to be a princess either or, you know, uh, manages to gain a fortune through their services. Yeah. Things like that. And they get these through different, um, like, through different merits that they can have. It can be perseverance. It can be uh, cleverness. It can be love, you know, Um mainly though sorry um but like you know there are different ways of doing it there there are some fairy tales also that have cunning in them which is not necessarily a a merit but that depends again on on the way the fairy tale is told and in what circles it's told and sometimes it can be that it's you know um it's cunning and you see it as a good thing and and then you know especially when you're sort of you know when you've got the a villain who's being robbed of their money rather than you know rather than the just king who then, you know, loses something to a little Rumpelstiltskin type character. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's a, cunning is a, is a bit of a double-sided coin. But um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the whole principle of it. You, you reward something that is a character trait rather than something material. Nice. And do, do these fairy tales often explore morals or like teachable lessons of the people pass the answer others yeah i mean that's that's sort of part of you know if you know if you if you really are if you really do love this lady you can win her or if you um if you're willing to help everyone then you can then you will be rewarded by um whoever you know has has a prize for you whoever has a treasure to pay you with or something so that is usually how it works that like that virtue gets rewarded in the end but it's not that isn't necessarily with all the stories why they're being told some of them are like moral tales and some of them are just sort of the you know the dream tales where you're like you know you end up marrying the princess if you want but 
Yeah. A lot of the stories that are about children, they're not necessarily for children, by the way. A lot of Grimm's Tales are not designed for children, but they're about children. And these are more sort of the moral tales. Some of them very amoral, by the way. <laughs> like uh, the, the evil sister chops off the unloved son's head and the mother's like, oh, oh no, but doesn't say any more about it. So there, there are very crazy tales where you're like, okay, this is um, what you can learn from that is pretty evil, but it's it's got a moral, like someone can get away with something as well if they're the favourite child sort of thing. Isa, do you think that all these, or a lot of these tales like focus on children as the protagonists, reckon is because it's less convincing for adults to go through these sorts of teachable moments? Yeah, so um one of the one of the other main features I think is that you've got um you start from an innocent place. So that most of the protagonists of the fairy tales are innocent beings and therefore children fit in that very well because you believe that a child comes from this innocent place and like really tries to do this um and really tries their best to learn something. Whereas if you say this, you know, this this adult came along and, and learned something out of this, that's a bit you know, it's a bit harder to to convey in that sense because most adults don't want to be like learning because another adult had to see that they made a mistake. It's not about showing someone that they're wrong and showing they're the you know showing them that they need to change their ways. It's about seeing how staying innocent can be a good thing more yeah. more often than not. Really interesting. Um, Lizzie, what do you think? This might be a like a less friendly take on the fairy tale, but uh, <laughs> where the fairy tale comes up in my research, because I'm researching witchcraft, it often comes up in a much more realistic way where people are using fairy tales to try and explain the horrors of their life. Mm-hmm. So things like the changeling child came up in Scotland because people were losing children and miscarriages and things like that were incredibly common. Mm-hmm. So they had to create this story to make themselves feel better about the kind of horrors of their life at that time. And I think sometimes children were in danger in history. Mm. And maybe that's also a part of why children became the the sort of focus of the fairy tale. Yeah, I agree. Have you got any favourite fairy tales? Ooh, tricky. <laughs> I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> what's your yeah. favourite one then? What's, what's stuck with you more than any of these? Do you want to go first or? Um, <laughs> Need time to find some. I mean, I like, I like Bluebeard. I think Bluebeard's a great, mm. interesting one. I think the Juniper Tree, which suspiciously means I just like all the ones where the children are killed, I think. But <laughs> I don't think I've ever I, heard Bluebeard. What, what's that one? You might be better at like giving the exact history of, of Bluebeard, you know, because it's, it's more of a in your area but it's basically uh there's a guy uh, a wealthy and powerful guy who and they originally it's it's wives that turn up right it's his wives that keep dying yeah i think so yeah i can never remember um and he's basically this just this hideous and suspicious creature whose wives keep turning up dead and and he has all these skeletons in his closet yeah it's a very oh. eerie sort of tale <laughs> It's just dark. Yeah, weird. What about you, Yanni? And what are your favourite ones? Then? Um, I back in that module, I wrote about uh, a tale called "The Fish in the Ring," which is not like uh, that well known, I don't think. But it's a it's an English fairy tale that is about this this young lady who um is of you know humble birth, but is destined to marry this rich son, and. Uh, his, his his father finds that out through some fortune teller and then rides over to try and kill her the moment she's born and then he tries to kill her at several stages in her life but just doesn't succeed and then he well they they get married through some weird circumstance like he tries to thwart it at any point but they do get married and then he takes away the ring and is like right and, and chucks it into the sea says you're not you're not married to my son unless you can bring that ring back and she's just like oh no okay I guess uh that's that's it and she goes back to like working in a kitchen somewhere 
Um, and then one day she serves a fish to this guy who happens to be in the castle on a like stately visit thing. And he cuts up and he cuts the fish open and in the fish is the ring. And then she uh, gets the guy back. And I just, I just think that's so ingenious. She just like through, story. yeah, through virtue, through being a, a good sort of girl, she, she gets like the gods help her to get, <laughs> to get her life back sort of thing. So oh, it's, it's quite a cool good, story. Huh? Yeah. That's the fish in the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So, so uh, what I was in, intrigued about before, what, something that you mentioned is that you learned how to write your own fa- fairy tales. And I think that's a really good way to, I don't know, just sort of fl- like learn a few new skills, flex your writing muscles if you're like looking to add new layers to your stories or, mm. or your fantasy worlds or even if you just want to write some fairy tales. I think that's a really cool way, cool thing to do anyway. So how, how yeah. do you actually go about writing fairy tales? Well, I mean, it's it's very similar to just writing a short story in that sense. Like, you, you know, yeah. um, so it's a nice short story sort of framework. Um, like, you know, it's, it's it's a bit of its own genre. Um, but, you know, you have to you have to figure out if you want to incorporate all the all the innocent sort of person or like the just desserts, the, you know, and order is restored at the end to the world and stuff. If you want all that in. Um, you can also like there are a lot of fairy tales that subvert even the fairy tale form already because it's such an old tale that people have started subverting it. Um, and there's like a lot of women who then try and get a better position that which sort of undermines the patriarchal worldview. So you can you can do that and write a totally, you know, an already existing type of fairy tale. Um uh, which is nice. Like I always like the subverting kind of fairy tale. Um, but what's also what also helps write fairy tales. What what we started with is we um, we watched retellings. We watched Disney films. Um, you know that basically tell a similar story. Um, and you know, like um, the Frog Prince being adapted, um, things like that. And then you try and retell one yourself. So I did retell The Fish in the Ring and I retold it in a Hollywood setting uh, in the 1920s um, with the ring becoming the ring of the agent informing the, you know, the girl of humble birth that she got her breakthrough role. So I I made it a completely different thing, but, you know. um, Yeah, same thing. Yeah, and the the girl was sort of like a, an allusion to Esther Williams, who was like the mermaid of the uh, the twentieth century, and and that that she is, is sort of you know acquainted with the the fish sort of environment through that sort of angle, um, and so I tried to keep some of the settings with it, but in a like update them in a in a different way, and then once you've sort of written that down and you've you've hit your different plot points that are in the story that you already know you get a feeling for how like how the beats work and like how that journey works from the either humble birth or from a from an innocent um you know an an innocent character moving through a world and how they prove themselves and if they struggle or if they don't most of the times it's not really it, it doesn't have to be a character arc most of the times it's more like because this character is good and stays good, that's why they get what they get. And not this character is actually bad and then becomes a better person because they meet with struggles. Um, that is less less common, but also happens. Yeah. So I think if you, you know, if you start with retelling, you'll get that feeling for the pacing and stuff, and then it'll be easier to come up with your own sort of idea and setting. Um, and it doesn't have to be the medieval setting either. It will totally still be a fairy tale if you do a modern setting. I just wanted to ask you about the influence fairy tales have had on the fantasy genre as a whole, because you said, like you said before, it's got its 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 own type of story, isn't it? And it's I think it does fit within the fantasy genre, would you say? Or it's more of an influence? What would you think? What do you think about that? Tricky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're definitely fantastical. They have, yeah. I don't know whether they, they, they share elements, certainly. Yeah, whether they're the same, I don't know. They belong to the same group. 
I'd say it's it's very difficult because of a fantasy we now expect an, a more epic, longer tale, you know. Um and therefore it is it, it would be and even in back in the day, something like Beowulf you would say is fantasy, and even back in the day would have been considered an epic rather than a fairy yeah. tale. So that is that is quite different in that sense. Um that you you do have um more character development you do have uh, a bigger scope in general and you have more conflict fairy tales are like shorter things that deal with one type of conflict um and then throws certain characters of certain dispositions in there and see how they deal with it but not um you know they the different elements of it don't influence each other so much yeah so that in that sense it's very difficult and also I don't think fantasy necessarily has that social mobility element so much. Um, so I, I would say fantasy does come from quite a different angle and more of a more of an epic uh, and it, like history telling angle rather than a moral tale. Yeah, so. I suppose it's the fantasy worlds that distinguish it. If you, if you think about fairy tales, it's always like once upon a time and nondescript, mm. nondescript land. Um, yeah. Whereas fantasy is the opposite it's like three pages of world building before you you get to know the characters <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah but i mean that is a that is very much a fairy tale thing that it doesn't there isn't a fixed setting um because then it becomes more applicable to everyone whereas part of the, of the fantasy fun is that you you know you can imagine a more specific different world so. yeah and that, that this leads me into the last question i've got for you is what can we learn from fairy tales as fantasy writers. And I think this is, you touched upon something there, which I think fantasy does, doesn't really focus on a lot. And that's the sort of, the, the morality of, of things and like <laughs> passing on moral messages. And so a lot of good fantasy does, but sometimes it's just like more dragons and wizards. <laughs> and there's not much meaning behind it. Um, so, so what do you think? What can we learn from fairy tales i think it's not necessarily a, a case of like making it didactic and making it tell people oh you need to do this with your life but the fact that fairy tales through fantasy allow us to talk about problems that we have or questions that we have or ideas that we have in this world in the life that we live makes it more accessible and more relatable and, and a good fantasy could certainly learn to do that because it helps you find a way into reading it yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's that you've that you can like fantasy just like any other genre it can tell you about our, our world and to tell you anything about our world. Um and like one of the one of the the things that fairy tales try to do apart from like a moral statement do this do that is also they show what's wrong with the world around you at the minute. Um so they like they talk about an unjust ruler or something like that. And that is just just as political even though it like seems far removed. It's just as political as, you know, just literally writing about a com contemporary setting. So that is a thing that you can do with, with fantasy. Um, and it, it, it's not a thing that you have to do because you can also, like, you can also always say that it's it's there for enjoyment and therefore exploring other worlds rather than, you know, showing you what's wrong with our world. But it's certainly yeah. a thing that, <laughs> that you know, that that you can take into it. Um, and I do think you can import the social mobility issue um, in it as well. That's that's always a, like an interesting sort of plot line yeah. to see how people progress through society. And that can teach you a lot about like the different societies in your fantastical world that you're building. If someone is moving along those, you know, those different statuses. Um, so that that can be that can be a really interesting exploration of all types of society um that are in there or like you know all, all types of species and things um so where can we learn a bit more about fairy tales uh, jack zipes is always a good um scholar for that very academic i will say that's that was the he was the main scholar that we dealt with in my in my module um he's got a very good um edition of of the grimm's fairy tales uh by the way that you can also get on audible and stuff um and he, he like he has very good like sort of short introductions of them where he sort of explains what the context of it is a little bit and how they were collected. Um, 
because unlike most people think that Grimm's fairy tales were not just, you know, they didn't just walk around and ask every single person in the village how they remember the story. It, it didn't work like that. It was very much more middle class people that were asked about these tales. And it wasn't an empirical kind of research either. Um, so, and then they, like the brothers, they like embellished the tales in later editions and, and things like that. So it's it's all to be taken with a pinch of salt. It's very difficult to get a hold of like, you know, what the what the original tale was like. But if you read something with a, you know, an edition like that with a good scholar who who sort of explains what's what's there um and how this has been gathered, then I can I can definitely recommend that. What you this year got any nice recommendations? Marina Warner, if you want to think a little bit more modern, a little bit more feminine of a perspective, has some great books about the structure of fairy tales and the archetypical characters in fairy tales that we get, um, and also the woman's position in fairy tales and how women track over the kind of various fairy tales over the generations. So her stuff is really good for that too. Oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to check that one out myself. Yeah, we've covered quite a bit there on the old fairy tale fronts. <laughs> Thanks very much for, for sharing your wisdom. Uh, if anyone would like to learn a bit more about uh, Yanina and Lucy, um, head over to the Faith Fellows podcast. The link is in the description. How's the podcast been going? What topics have we been covering on that lately? We did actually do a few fairy tales. Um, I'm, I'm currently editing an episode on uh, a fairy tale uh, about... Uh, fish again. <laughs> All yours are about fish. <laughs> I know. I'm just realizing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been doing a series of fairy tales and a series of uh, cryptids, exploring cryptids and yeah. creatures. Cool. So, yes. Like Lucy talks about cryptids and I talk about yeah, fairy like tales. Bigfoot. We have an episode uh, on Bigfoot. I will. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I've actually listened to your episode on Bigfoot. I love Bigfoot, but we won't go into Bigfoot now. Uh, thanks very much for listening everyone and we'll be back uh, with ghost stories next time so stick around for that Janine and Lucy for sharing their insights please do go and check out the Faith Fellows podcast you're spoiled for choice with topics I definitely recommend the Bigfoot episode too and Lucy and Janine will be back in the next few episodes to tell us all about ghost stories and a bit about Dungeons and Dragons and how this amazing game can help writers. But sadly, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on the 28th of Feb with sociologist N. Burke as we continue our series on how to create lifelike characters. I had a fantastic chat with N about how society shapes who we are and how we can apply that to our character building process. To be sure you don't miss it, follow or subscribe to the show or join our writing community. It's open to everyone with a passion for writing. You can find hundreds of fellow writers from across the globe who all help support and collaborate with each other. So to learn more, just click the link in the description. And if you'd like to continue on with your quest for fantasy writing knowledge, head over to our Patreon page. You can access writing classes and workshops covering topics like writing a fantasy novel, creating characters and world building. And you can also get a copy of my uh, book on writing fantasy, a fantasy writer's handbook, which has helped people land book deals. So thanks again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and keep on scribbling. <laughs>